We're in Mark chapter 1. We are in the middle of a two-part series. Well, not in the middle. I guess we're at the end. There's only two parts. We are at the end today of a two-part series. Last week, prompted by our text, we spoke about Jesus and demons. And we promised that this week we would speak about you and demons. So that is our subject today. Our text today, as last week, starts in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue, and he began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Listen. And just then, there was in their synagogue a man with a demon. And he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked them, saying, Be quiet and come out of them. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of the boy, or the man. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere in all the surrounding district. Demons. Demons. If you read the Bible, it is impossible to escape the reality of Satan and the reality of his demons. Demons, as you probably know if you've studied the Bible at all, are those angels that rebelled against God and have now set their hand to working against every work of God in this world to continually do evil. And if you've studied the Bible, you know that the head of the demons is named Satan. You may not know that Satan in Hebrew means adversary or enemy. So the very name of Satan is enemy. And with regards to Satan and demons, the basic characteristic is to originate sin and to tempt others to sin. That is, Satan originated sin and he continually tempts other people to sin. 1 John 3, 8 says, The devil has sinned from the beginning. And John 8, 44, Jesus says, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. There is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So this one, the enemy, the murderer, as Jesus called him, the father of lies, exists to continually oppose and try to destroy the every work of God. Now listen very carefully how Satan does this. His number one goal is to blind people to the reality of the gospel, to have people spiritually blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior who died to save humanity from their sins and from sin and death and hell. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we are told that the God of this world, lowercase g, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Now listen to me, Christians. Listen, if you're a Christian, give me all your attention. The Bible declares that for those who have not received the gospel, Satan has blinded their minds that they might not comprehend it. If you're like me and you have unsaved people whom you love, that's a terrifying thought. At this moment, church becomes very sobering. 
We need to begin to engage now, Christians. We need to think about this. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to strike us with the reality, the fact that Satan is blinding people that we love to the only way that they might be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this morning you would expose the enemy, horribly so for him, wonderfully so for your kingdom. God, that you would expose him in a way that we would become educated, enlightened to his schemes, to his movings, and we would become aware and rejoicing over the fact of the authority that you have entrusted to the believer. Lord, I I pray against naivete. I, I pray that there would be none in this congregation who call themselves children of God that would be so naive as to think that Satan is not alive and working in the world today. I have experienced his workings in my life. I've seen it in the life of my friends. I have seen the destruction on the news. I've seen the destruction in our community. And Lord, we ask that this morning you would instruct us to stand firm, that you would instruct us to engage in the battle that you have already won, that you would impress upon our hearts, Lord, a seriousness, a desire that would uh, just cause us to press into you, a desire for the lost. Lord, we would confess, I would confess my lukewarmness, my apathy, all these things that I am in my humanity, but I ask that this morning you would give us an urgency for the gospel and a fervency for the authority you have entrusted to us and the battle that you have won. In Jesus' name, amen. So the enemy is blinding the minds of the unbelieving. His goal being that their end fate might be the same as his end fate. Do you remember last week? We looked in Revelation chapter 20 there at the lake of fire. When at the end of time, at the great white throne judgment, God throws Jesus... uh, God throws Satan into the lake of fire and there he is destroyed. Now... Satan can read the Bible, you know that, you understand that, and he knows what his end is. He is very aware of the end that is approaching him. And so he wants to take as many people with him. He is not so dumb to think that hell is going to be a party. We often think that it's a big party with the lights off, all the fun people will be there. Don't be foolish. The Bible says that it's weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness, and that there is a worm that never dies. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. And God created hell, not for you and I, not for humanity, but for Satan. But Satan's goal is to take as many people with him as he can by blinding their minds to the gospel. Has anybody here ever been to a pool party, a swimming pool party? Okay. Inevitably at a pool party, a good one anyway. Usually the person who is most impressed with their own looks, who spent the most time preparing their outfit, has the best makeup, the best hair, the nicest clothes, is standing furthest away from the pool, posed ever so nicely with his plate of food, is going in the pool, right? For sure, no doubt about it, no question. I was at a pool party some time ago at a house up behind the um, industrial park over there on the other end of town. And it was one of these nice houses up there and it had this big giant pool and a beautiful landscaping and this big powerful strong wrought iron fence around the pool and stuff. And we were there for a barbecue and we're just enjoying ourselves. And I was that person just engulfed in my vanity, thought I looked oh so good, had chosen the perfect blue colored shirt for the day. And I was standing there enjoying my food. 
all of a sudden, I see all my friends coming toward me in a gang. And I'm thinking, man, my friends love me. Check it out. They're going to come put the loving on me. We're going to wrap down. And all of a sudden, they go, get them. And they begin to grab me, and they start pulling me, and they're trying to pull me into the pool, right? And I'm a pretty big guy. I think, man, I could take you guys. So I start snapping off jabs, and I'm taking out one, two, maybe a couple guys, and I'm holding my own. Pretty soon, the whole party has joined in, and they're all pulling me to go into this pool. Well, me, being extremely intelligent, grab the wrought iron fence, and I'm holding this fence saying, man, you ain't got nothing on me. All of a sudden, patow, the fence comes out of the ground, and they're dragging me toward the pool. Now, there came a moment in my mind where I realized I'm going in the pool. There is no way out of it now. And at the moment where I realized it was inevitable that I would go in the pool, you can better believe I begin to grab everybody. Old ladies, little babies, cats, dogs, mamas. I don't care who they were. If I'm going down, you're all going down with me. Now, Satan is just like me in that respect. He says, if I'm going down in the lake of fire... I am taking humanity with me. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe would never perish but have everlasting life. And the Bible declares that God desires that none would perish but that we are engaged in a battle for the souls of men and women. And here's how Satan blinds people to the gospel. By enslaving them. Galatians 4.8 When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Meaning, Satan gets people bound up in ideologies, in material things, in the pursuit of money, the pursuit of fame, the pursuit of wealth, all these different things. Satan gets them bound up in this pursuit of life so that they've just got this one-tracked mind, never stopping to think or ponder eternity, never stopping to think about the reality of their own mortality, never stopping to think that there might be something more, never being able to hear and receive the gospel because Satan has them bound up enslaved to the things of this world. 2 Timothy 2.26 says, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been, killed, having been held captive by him to do his will. Listen to that. Satan has people held captive to do his will. Now you walk up to a non-Christian and you would never just open the conversation with this line. Did you know that Satan currently has you held captive and that you're doing his will against your own will? I'm a Christian. God bless you. Nice to meet you. (laughs) And yet that is the reality. That is exactly what the Bible declares. Colossians 1.13 says, Before we were saved, we were in the kingdom or the domain of darkness. And when we are born again, we are transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God. But Satan's number one goal is to keep people bound up in that darkness through the distractions of the world, the distractions of the flesh, through idolatry to keep them blinded to the gospel. Satan's second primary goal is to hinder the Christian in his joy, in his witness, and in his usefulness. If he has lost one from the kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of the light, then he will still seek to rob the joy of that Christian, to destroy the witness of that Christian, and to affect their effectiveness for the kingdom of God. And he does this through these very familiar things we all know and deal with. Temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, 
pride, slander, basically all the stuff that we deal with every day are the schemes of the enemy to rob the joy of the Christian, to hinder our effectiveness. Now, I will venture to say that Satan is extremely uncreative. If you study history and you study the Bible, his tactics have never changed. They have been the same from the beginning and they will be same from the, to the end. He uses lies, deception, and murder. The Bible is very clear about this. Satan is a father of lies. He is a deceiver. And Jesus said he is a murderer from the beginning. Satan murders humanity through drug abuse, through sexual immorality, through suicide, through abortion, through violence. Satan's goal is to murder humanity and have them spend eternity in outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me extremely angry. That breaks my heart. I know people at this moment who are not in the kingdom of light. And I can see often in my own life Satan working to destroy my usefulness, to hinder my witness, to steal my joy. And that is the work of the enemy, opposing the work of God, the occupation of Satan and his demons. Now, to shatter the moment, last week we spoke clearly that Jesus has authority over the demons. There was absolutely no question about it. We spent a whole hour in Bible study laying out the fact that Jesus has absolute authority over Satan and his demons and that Satan and the demons are limited in their power, limited in the way that they can work in the world by God's control. In Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2, we saw that Satan was only allowed to do to Job what God permitted him to do. In Jude verse 6, we are told that the demons are kept under eternal bonds. That is to say, God has limited the way that they could work in the world. We saw that in the Old Testament, there was a certain stage of demonic activity, and yet God had his victory. We saw that when Jesus came, it was a brand new sort of victory in the midst of demonic activity. We saw that throughout the church age, we took a picture of how demonic activity continues, but that we as believers have been given authority. And then we saw the millennial kingdom, where Satan will be bound for a thousand years and Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem and then he is released to once again demonstrate his own wickedness and the wickedness of the heart of men and then we looked at the white throne judgment where Satan is destroyed thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and as we saw those differing stages of demonic activity and how God has dealt with it and will deal with it we see that God is sovereign amen we see that Jesus Christ has the authority amen men, we see that Satan is clearly a defeated foe. Jesus came in the flesh to destroy the work of the enemy. Upon the cross, the Bible declares he disarmed the rulers and authorities and triumphed over them. If one of the major purposes of the incarnation of Jesus Christ was to defeat the enemy, then you had better believe, you can believe, that he is defeated. What? Did Jesus Christ fail in his mission? May it never be, no, not a chance. Satan is a defeated foe. Though he is defeated, we have the wonderful joy of living in a dispensation, a time in history in which he is still active prior to the final judgment. Remember last week we used the illustration of the rope-a-dope. We spoke of Muhammad Ali 
and that Muhammad Ali would allow himself to get up on the rope sometimes and his opponent would just be beating the tar out of him and the whole crowd is going, Muhammad, what's wrong with you? Come on, Ali, come on. And the trainer's going, man, you're getting beat. What's the deal? And all the time he knew, just wait. Just wait. This fool's got what's coming to him. Just wait. And the enemy would run his course and then wham, 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 wham. Muhammad would come and he would defeat him. Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Cassius Clay, we'll call him. Better name. He had a plan. Jesus Christ has a plan. You and I are living in the rope-a-dope. It seems as though the enemy is gaining ground. He is not. It seems as though the enemy at times may win. He will not. His end is sure. God's plan will be accomplished. I challenge you to find a prophecy in the Bible that God has not fulfilled literally and to the T those that have been fulfilled already. And so the prophecy of the enemy. But we had to study that last week that we might hold on to and have that eternal perspective that he is a defeated foe because we are currently in the midst of the battle. And so it helps us to know, wait a minute, this battle has a victory and we are on the winning team. Jesus Christ wins. Now, knowing this, don't be surprised when the attack of the enemy comes against you. We as Christians often lament to one another and it's okay. We often say, oh man, the enemy this week, he's just coming at me from this direction and that direction and this direction and I just can't believe it. Well, believe it. Don't be surprised when the enemy attacks. It is his very nature, his very character. Peter said to the church, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come among you as if it were some strange thing. Jesus said, in this world you are going to have trouble, but take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus warned us, Satan will come to steal, kill, and to destroy, but he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And so we see this strange idea. We struggle with it. The sovereignty of God, that God currently allows the enemy to work to a certain degree. He affords him a certain amount of power. If you don't read the end of the book and you don't comprehend the fullness of the plan of God, that is baffling to you. That is frightening. But don't forget, the victory is sure in the end. One reason why God currently permits the enemy to work in our world and to do things is because it strengthens and matures and grows the Christian. Don't you understand that? The Bible is very clear that the only way our faith grows is through trials. And so often the trials come at the hand of the enemy. And so God permits it for our growth, for our strengthening. I would say to you that we would never develop into the fullness of who we are supposed to be as Christians if God did not allow the enemy some workings in the world. Think with me about the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. There the early church had been commissioned by the Lord, to go into all the world preaching the gospel. But we see that for seven chapters, they went nowhere. They stayed in Jerusalem where they were. Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Well, the day of Pentecost came. The Holy Spirit came upon the church. They received power from on high. The next logical step, the command of Jesus Christ, was to go into all the world, to the uttermost parts, and preach the gospel. 
And yet we see that the church was just chilling there in Jerusalem. Yes, people were getting saved, but they were not being obedient. They weren't growing. The kingdom wasn't expanded. What happened to change that? Acts chapter 8, God allows some persecution to come upon the church. We see some martyrs taking place. We see some people dying for their faith. We see radical persecution begin to happen, and now the church is scattered abroad. Now the church moves out of the bounds of Jerusalem and into the world and finally begins to fulfill the great commandment. But it did not happen until the adversary turned up the heat by the allowance of God. It did not happen until the trials, until the tribulations came. Then they began to walk as they were to walk. Then they began to fulfill the commission as they were to fulfill the commission. So understand, if God is allowing the enemy to tempt you, if God is allowing the enemy to work in your life, that as we spoke of, or as we will speak of this morning, there is a prescription for success but it has not come your way except through the sovereignty of God. Don't think that. Don't despair. Nothing has come your way, Christian, that has not passed first through the sovereignty of God. An army is trained in war games, aren't they? To practice for war, they do war. They'll use blanks, they'll fight against their own team, a football team. A football team is trained for victory. They play scrimmages. They'll play against their own guys, so on and so forth. Well, in the same way, the Christian is trained in war, but this is not a scrimmage, and this is not a war game. We are soldiers, and we are trained in the heat of the battle, in the real deal. And so with the knowledge of that, it's been a wonderful spiritual journey for me in the last couple months to begin to grab onto that. As I see the enemy working, to cease despairing and begin to say, okay, Lord, what are you going to teach me here? Okay, Lord, how do you want to refine my life? How do you want to refine the church? You understand that this demon-possessed man in our text, he was in the church, so to speak. He was in the synagogue. Now, God is sovereign. Jesus Christ was sovereign. Couldn't he have kept that man out? Why was he allowed to be in the synagogue? Jesus told us in the parables, in the gospels, that there will be tares among the wheat. There will be wolves among the sheep. That the enemy will work. Friends, there may come a day when you're in a church somewhere and there's a demonic manifestation right in the middle of it. Friday night at Reality, our college group, this was unbelievable. Friday night at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, our college group, we're there in the second set of worship, just worshiping the Lord, playing the songs, and, and I have my head down, I'm playing guitar, and I'm just worshiping Jesus, and all of a sudden our drummer, Dave Granada, says, hey, Britt, and I look up, and there is the biggest human being you have ever seen on the stage with his shirt off, covered in head to toe in blood, charging directly for me. Luckily, I have guys like Billy and Paul and Todd who rushed onto the stage and grabbed this guy and restrained him. Wait a minute, hold on. Church just got weird. Church just got uncomfortable. Church just got freaky. I'm telling you, Friday night, I'm worshiping the Lord, and Dave Granada says, hey, Britt, you better look. And I look up, and there is a giant man with a stab wound here, and his head split open, and blood all over his body coming in my direction. I am told that when he entered the door, there's another guy named John who was by the door when he entered in, he came in muttering something about demon possession. Not that he was demon possessed, but he said something about it. I don't know what that situation was, friends, but it was not normal. It wasn't exactly fun. 
But it happened in the midst of our church on Friday night. Now, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? Well, instead of being fretful, fearful, whining and complaining, we do exactly what Paul told us to do, to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes and the wiles of the enemy. The clear call of Scripture is that we would stand firm. In James, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter said, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So be sober, be on the alert and stand firm. So Christians, in the face of the reality of demonic activity in our world today, What does it mean to stand firm? We know that Jesus won the victory, but how do we make it operative in our life today? Let me say this. This message today will not be an exhaustive treatment on demons or spiritual warfare. There's no time to do that. The Lord has not called us to do that at this time. We will have plenty of opportunities as we study the book of Mark. Go ahead and sneak a little peek, read ahead. Demons come up continually. We'll have lots more of opportunities to speak of this. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that is what is coming ahead in the text. But today, we're just going to narrow in on one single aspect as it was brought to light in our text last week. And that is the authority given to every Christian by Jesus Christ. We could talk about the armor. We could talk about different aspects of prayer. We could talk about our position in Christ. We could talk about the shield of faith. But we're going to narrow in for a few more minutes on the authority that has been given to every single Christian. Remember that last week, when Jesus cast out the demon, the people were amazed at his authority over the demonic realm. Here is one thing that is very clear in the Bible. Jesus, having this authority gave it to those who are his followers. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we'll see it in several weeks, Jesus gave authority to the 12 disciples over demons. He said, go forward preaching the gospel of the kingdom and casting out demons. I give you authority over them. So he gave it to the 12. And then after that, in Luke chapter 10, he gave authority over demons to the 70 disciples and he sent them forth on a little missionary trip. And then after that, in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 7, we see that Philip had authority to cast out demons. He was not an apostle. He was just an evangelist. But he also had the authority given by Christ to cast out demons. Later on, moving down through church history now, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, we see that Paul had authority over demons. That he went into Philippi, and there was a girl who was possessed with the spirit of divination. And he said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her and at that very moment the demon came out just as it did when Jesus said it in the synagogue in our text that day so we see it with the 12 disciples we see it with the 70 we see it in the book of Acts with an evangelist we see it further on in church history with Paul and we see it into the second and third century with a man named Tertullian He was one of the early church fathers and he wrote this in something called an apology or in a defense of the faith that he wrote to the Roman government. He writes this. This is second and third century. All the authority and power we have over evil spirits 
is from naming the name of Christ and recalling to their memory the woes with which God threatens them at the hand of Christ their judge and which they expect one day to overtake them. Fearing Christ in God and God in Christ, they become subject to the servants of God who are in Christ. So at one touch and breathing, overwhelmed by the thought and realization of those judgment fires, the evil spirits leave at our command the bodies they have entered, unwilling and distressed and before your very eyes put to open shame. So there we have the clear testimony of one of the church fathers in the second and third century that he too had authority in the demonic realm given to him by Jesus Christ. And so, saints, it continues on today. It would be illogical to think that it stopped at some point in history. There is nothing to point out biblically or historically that this authority was withdrawn from Christians, that it was withdrawn from those who are in the kingdom. Remember that you as a Christian are called the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Anytime you send an ambassador, you send him with authority. We are called the representatives of Christ Jesus. We represent him also in that authority. We are called the children of the king. Now, wouldn't it be silly to be the children of the king and the kingdom of light if the kingdom of darkness had authority over us? It's not even logical. The children of the king have the authority of the king. And so it is today. So realizing biblically that we have this authority given to us by Christ in the demonic realm, how do we use it? Well, one thing is very clear. Listen to me now. One thing is very clear. With Jesus, with the disciples, with Paul in Acts chapter 16, with Tertullian, one thing is very clear. That when the followers of Jesus exercised this authority, they did it verbally. We have no other model in the Bible of the exercising of this authority except through prayer and the verbalization thereof, the verbalization of that authority. Every time Jesus cast out a demon, he did it verbally. When Paul did it, he simply said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. And the demon came out. Tertullian said, at our voice, when we command. And so we see that this authority that has been given to us is often exercised verbally. Now I know that we are for many on unfamiliar ground. I know this is weird stuff. I know this is not your normal Sunday morning sermon stuff, but I believe this is very important for this church at this moment in history. You may begin to ask, as I have asked, because I was very weary of verbally exercising that authority, of speaking to demons, of commanding them verbally. I was very weary of that. But think of it. Why does God want us to speak directly to the demon who is troubling someone instead of just praying and asking God to deal with it? Why would there be this verbal aspect instead of just praying? Think with me. It's similar to asking this question. Why should we verbalize the gospel instead of just praying and asking God to reveal it to a person's heart? God has called us to verbalize the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, how will they know if nobody preaches to them? God has called us to verbalize the gospel. Yes, we can pray, but he has also called us to verbalize it. What about a word of exhortation? If you want to encourage a Christian, 
Why not just pray and say, God, you encourage them instead of verbalizing it? No. God has given us the gift of exhortation and he calls us to verbally encourage one another. Could we just pray? Yes. Could God do it that way? Absolutely. And yet he has called us to verbalize the gospel, to verbalize encouragement. What about when someone is sin, in sin? Gerald, my best friend, and my wife, my really, truly best friend, they continually, lovingly verbalize to me my sin. Hey, man, look what you're doing. Here's how that's wrong. Stop doing it. Now, they could just pray and say, Lord, you show him. And the Lord is able to do that. But the Lord has called us to admonish one another, to encourage one another, and to preach the gospel verbally, actively, in the world that God has created. He has given us a very active role in carrying out his plans as it pertains to the expansion of the kingdom. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament and the Exodus. Don't you remember when the children of Israel had their faces against the Red Sea and they had their backs to the approaching armies of Egypt and God commanded Moses that he lift his staff over the waters and then the Red Sea was departed. Wait a minute. Why didn't God just part the Red Sea? I don't know. He involved Moses. What about when Israel was battling the Amalekites? And Moses had to stand on the mountain and hold up his rod. And as long as he held up the rod, the Israelites had the victory. When he began to fail in that and bring it down, the enemy began to have the victory. Why didn't God just give them the victory without using Moses and his rod? That is simply how God has chosen to do it. Why doesn't he just convert men and women without the verbal preaching of the gospel? That is just simply how God has chosen to do it. Why do we have to verbally express and use the authority he has given us over demons? Because that is the way God has chosen to do it. He has employed us in his work. It is clear from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. He has entrusted authority into the hands of men. Imagine a father whose son comes home from school every day, beaten and bruised and bloody, beat up by the other kids. Now the father could simply go to that school ground and beat the tar out of those kids himself, you know? One time I got my bike stolen here in Carpinteria. I had tons of bikes stolen in Carpinteria. This is like bike thievery central. I had my bike stolen one time. I was riding back. I was going to main school here. This was my school. In fact, I was a president in sixth grade of that school. I was going to that school and uh, I was riding home. My family lives over um, behind tar pits over there behind the state park, you know, Kaya Raymar, Kaya Ocha, that area. And so I was riding my bike across the state park, and right then, some junior high guys jumped out from behind the bushes. In fact, no, nah, I won't tell you their names. They're still in town. And they began to beat me up, and they knocked me off my bike, and they stole my bike. And I had to walk home, and I'm crying. I'm like in fourth grade, Mama. It was a brand new, do you remember... Um, what was that bike called? Rampart. Raleigh. No, Redline. Remember those? Oh, man, I finally had a Redline. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And these fools took it from me. And I went home crying to my mom. And I said, Mom, these guys took my bike. My mom said, come here, boy. She put me in the car. She drove to the guy's house. Put the smack on him, grabbed my bike, put it in the back of the car, and took me home. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Mama. (laughs) Now, there will come a moment in history where God will do that to the enemy. 
He will smack him. He will take all the power, all the authority, and he will throw him in the lake of fire. He will be there forever. But in the meantime, we are called to engage in the battle. And though my mom did me a favor in the immediate sense, she probably would have done me a bigger favor if she would have said, go over there, wimp boy, and get your bike back. I would have learned a few things. I would have lost a few less bikes growing up here in Carpinteria had I been taught that lesson. Our Heavenly Father could defeat the enemy in a minute. Think about this. He could wipe off of the face of the earth at this moment every bit of evil, but many of us would go in that. It is God's mercy that he doesn't wipe the face clean of evil until the final judgments. And he has sent us as his children back in the battle to grow from the battleground, to be stretched, to be challenged, to exercise our faith, to use that which he has given us and entrusted to us. Beyond learning, we receive incredible joy when we participate in the expansion of the kingdom through the authority given to us. We receive incredible joy when we see what God does. And so the New Testament pattern seems to be that God ordinarily expects Christians themselves to speak directly to demons. To some of you, that sounds very normal, and you're saying, yeah, okay, come on, pick it up, let's get to the next point. For others of you, you're saying, I don't know about that. What about Jude? Remember Jude? What about Jude? What about in that little tiny book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation? This was always my excuse. In Jude chapter 9, this is my excuse until very recently, I'm sorry, Jude verse 9. It says there that Michael the archangel, when he and Satan were battling over the body of Moses, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. It says that he did not dare to pronounce against Satan a judgment, a railing judgment, but he simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And so many of us have seen that and said, look, Michael the archangel doesn't speak directly to demons. Why would we command the demons verbally and directly? You need to realize that that is not the context of Jude chapter, uh, or Jude, it's only one chapter long, of Jude at all. It has nothing to do with the authority of the believer. In fact, in the book of Jude, it is speaking there of those men who are not Christians, but who devile the flesh, who uh, reject authority, and who revile angelic majesties, those who are rebelling against God. And the book of Jude gives us an illustration that says even Michael did not overstep his authority. Who are these men, not born again, non-Christians, who defile the flesh, reject authority? How do they dare revile angelic majesties, and so God gives us there a picture that even Michael, the archangel, knew the bounds of his authority. Even then, if you were to say, well, but he said the Lord rebuke you. He didn't say I rebuke you. It's the same thing. He still spoke, didn't he? It says there in Jude verse 9, and Michael, the archangel, said in quotes, the Lord rebuke you. How is that any different than saying I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ? It is the same thing. It's a different context. That's not what Jude is teaching. But I bring this to light so that you might know that I don't believe Jude is an excuse for us not to speak to demons. I believe that the only New Testament model is that when confronted with demonic activity, whether it be oppression, possession, or some manifestation thereof, we are to speak. Now, I have had miserable failures in this area of using my authority as a Christian. I was speaking at a camp not too long ago for uh, high school kids. And all the leaders from this church came to me. And they said, Britt, there's a girl here who's demon-possessed. 
She's 14, year old, 14 years old. Here's the thing she's doing. They described the stuff that she was doing. I was terrified. This girl was demon-possessed. And so I was the camp speaker, you know. And so they said, Britt, will you please deal with it? <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. How much you pay me? Oh, absolutely. Praise the Lord. No problem. Okay. Where is she at? Oh, boy. And so I finally had an encounter with this girl at about no significance, but it's about midnight. So about midnight, I run across this girl. And here's is I was convinced, I was absolutely convinced that I had authority in the name of Jesus Christ, not my own authority, given to me as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I was convinced of that. I was absolutely convinced biblically that the demon at the command of Jesus Christ would have to come out of this girl. I was not convinced that I had to verbalize that. And so as I began to talk to her, I was just praying. And I was just praying, Lord, do this and that and the other. And Lord, you cast out this demon now. And Lord, do this and that and the other. And I'll tell you, that girl looked at me with eyes that I will never forget. And I could not stand the stare of the demon. And I left. I failed at that moment in the authority given to me. I was not willing to verbalize the authority. Now, I don't know whether or not that was a deciding factor. But subsequent to then, I have had experiences with demons. I have had demons in my home. I have been paralyzed by demons, blinded by demons. I have had my son severely disturbed by demons. I have had demons in my home. And I have come to the point of verbalizing. In the name of Jesus Christ, by his authority, I command you to leave this place and do not return. Oh, that was a neat little piece that I learned. Do not return. I had been commanding them to leave and they would always come back. (laughs) Mark chapter nine, Jesus casts out a demon. When he does, he says, and do not return. And so the instruction of an older Christian, they said, well, what have you told them not to return? I said, no, I never thought of that. And so we, in my house, we prayed and we worshiped and we walked about and we said, by the authority given to us, by the authority given to me as the head of this household, in the name of Jesus Christ, you must leave and you cannot return. And I testify before God in you today that the demons left my home and they never, ever, 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 ever came back to the house. Never. It was spiritually clean. It was spiritually safe. But I had to verbally engage in the battle. I am so sorry if that sounds weird to you, if that sounds foreign, if that sounds strange to you, but that is what we see in the Bible, isn't it? My experience is no different than what you're going to read all the way through the Gospels. Now, if we're going to confront demons verbally, We need to remember that we have no reason to fear them. Isn't that a tough one? We need to remember that we have no reason to fear them. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He who is in you is Jesus Christ. He who is in the world is the enemy. 2 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Ephesians 6, 16 says we can have the shield of faith and with it quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says that our weapons are divinely powerful. And if the Lord is for us and he has absolute dominion over the enemy, then the children of the Lord need not fear these demonic things. We need not fear the enemy. The Lord gave me another opportunity the other night. I was in a home, and there was a demonic manifestation in a room. It was very clear to me. And I was at the bottom of the stairs, 
and it was late and it was dark and everyone else was asleep. And I knew that I had to go up the stairs and confront the demon. Was I afraid? I'm asking you. Was I afraid? You better believe I was afraid, man. (laughs) Until I begin to quote scriptures. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Satan is a defeated foe. Upon the cross, Jesus Christ triumphed over the authorities and disarmed them. And if the Lord is for me, who can be against me? And I walked up those stairs and I stood in the middle of that room and I tell you, when I walked in there, it was electric. It was terrifying to me. And I stood in the middle of the room and I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, you leave this place and you never come back. This is God's domain and he has given me authority. In the name of Jesus Christ, you go. And guess what? They went. Gee whiz, that's amazing. Consider the options, friends. Again, if this sounds strange to you, if this sounds frightening, what are the options when there's some sort of demonic manifestation? The only other options are to fear and cower. That's not a good option. To flee is an option. Tell me when in the Bible the people of God flee from the enemy. Never when they're walking in the authority of God. That is not an option. I fled when I was confronted with that demonically possessed girl. I fled at other times. But I'm coming to realize that that is not an option. At least not the best one. What is the other option? Just allow the demons to usurp your authority. Just allow them to continue to do their work. In my mind, those are not options at all. Not an option to be afraid. Not an option to flee from the enemy. But the Bible says, stand firm and he will flee from you. That's the word of God. That's not me. That's the word of God. It doesn't say flee from the enemy. It says flee from youthful lust in 2 Timothy 2.22. If you're confronted with a youthful lust, someone comes in front of you and does something youthfully lustful, run. (laughs) Amen, run at that time. It doesn't say stand firm and they will flee from you. It doesn't say that. It says run, run. Oh, let me tell the story real quick. Gee whiz, my wife and I went to Barbados. Somebody gifted us with a trip to Barbados and we went to Barbados last year and uh, oh, this is so funny. We're eating dinner around this place and they have one of those like, you know, tropical island show things like dances and stuff and there's all the women like doing, I don't know, their crazy dances. And there's this lady, she was the, uh, what's that called, sweetheart? Limbo. She was the limbo champion in Barbados, right? And so they had this pole like this, and the people were holding the pole, and she would come and limbo underneath it. And they get this thing like this close to the ground. She comes, (laughs) does a little limbo underneath. She's hardly wearing anything. My wife and I are horribly embarrassed. We're sitting there at dinner going, oh, this is not why we came to Barbados. This is awful. And then the lady comes and picks people out of the crowd to do the limbo with her. You know for sure she picked me. She came and she grabbed me. She said, come on, big boy. And she brings me out to do the limbo. Now she has me lined up and several other men. And before our turn came to do the limbo, she would go up before each man and do a little dance with them. She'd go up before the man and she's coming down the aisle, dancing half naked in my direction. And as I see her get to me, I go, flee youthful us, flee youthful us. And I ran in front of everybody, in front of the whole resort, everybody having dinner. I ran out of the restaurant, all the way through the hotel, up to my room, opened the door, slammed it shut, locked it behind me, and jumped on the bed and said, help me, Jesus, from the evil lady. Youthful us, we flee. But in the face of the real enemy, who was not this woman, 
The Bible declares that we are to stand firm and he will flee. Listen, saints, we are to stand firm in our position in Christ as sons of the Lord. And in the authority given to us, we are to stand firm. The options are to fear and to flee and let the enemy have his way. In my mind, those are no options at all. Is anybody here? Has anybody ever experienced demonic activity? Raise your hand. Okay. I want to bring out something very important now. And we begin to end with this. There's nothing to indicate biblically that demons know our thoughts or that they know the future. They absolutely cannot know the future unless it is revealed to them by God. I know that because of Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah chapter 46, and Isaiah chapter 48, where God declares that he is unique, that he is the only God because he knows the beginning from the end. Because he can declare what will take pass place before it takes place. God declares himself to be the only true God. The context there is he's challenging these dumb idols, these demonic powers. He's challenging them saying, prove to the people that you are God. Show us what will take place in the future. He alone can do it. That is a distinguishing mark that God is God, is that he alone knows the future unless he's revealed it. So I know that biblically speaking, Demons cannot know the future. That ought to bring comfort to you. But even more so, and now this pertains to how we engage in authority, there's nothing that would make us think biblically that they can know our thoughts. We are told that Jesus knew the heart of men and he knew the thoughts of men. We are told continually in the Bible that God knows the heart of man and God knows the thoughts of man. We are never told that the enemy can read our minds. This was enlightening to me because it now empowered me in the authority given to me because I realized that I had to verbalize it. If I simply walked into a situation and was thinking the enemy must flee, the enemy must flee, if I was merely thinking it, there's nothing in my Bible that would tell me they could read my mind. Now, aren't you glad about that? But that does mean that it had to be verbalized. They can't read my mind. And so I have to verbalize a simple rebuke, a very brief command. Paul just said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. And it took place. Sometimes it may be necessary to quote scripture, to use the sword of the Spirit. Now, I don't have to tell you guys how we open ourselves up to demonic situations or influences. Drugs, People, places, witchcraft, sin can all lead to the Christian being oppressed by the enemy. The enemy working in the Christian's life. We're foolish if we think that the enemy doesn't work. I continually see the enemy working in myself. And I've got to deal with that spiritually. But there is a link here between the way that we walk and the opportunity that the enemy has in our life. Listen to me very carefully now. Listen. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we see some horrible sins taking place. We see division, we see incest, and we see Christians suing Christian. When there was division in the body, 
The emphasis was not on the demonic. Paul didn't say to them, cast out a demon of division. Paul said to them, get over yourselves and be united in heart and in love and in spirit. When a young man had his father's wife, when there was incest in the body, Paul didn't say, cast out a demon of incest. Paul said, exercise church authority, deal with that sin, get the sin out of the body. The body's supposed to be holy and pure. When Christians were dragging each other before a court of law, Paul didn't say, cast out the demon of litigation. Paul said, get over yourselves, be willing to give up your own rights, pick up your cross daily, walk as Jesus walked. The emphasis in the New Testament is on following Jesus in our daily walk, walking according to the Spirit, walking in obedience, and that is the greatest way to stand firm. The emphasis overwhelmingly is not upon demons. We have to search to find some uh, stuff after the Gospels on spiritual warfare. It is there. It is a reality. We must engage in it, but it is not the overwhelming emphasis. So don't let this day or this sermon think this is a whole of Christianity. The thrust is continually walk rightly, walk with the Lord, walk apart from sin, and that limits the work that the enemy can have in our lives. Jesus said, that the enemy had no part in him, and he was sinless. Friends, when we sin in different ways, we open ourselves up to the work of the enemy. Isn't that just obvious? Isn't that just clear? We'd have to be dumb to think that's not clear. And so the more we walk in obedience, the less opportunity. Ephesians 4 even says, be angry, and yet do not sin in your anger, and by doing so, give Satan an opportunity. But I would just challenge us now as a church to try out our faith. The disciples went out on the mission trip and they cast out demons and they came back and said, golly, gee whiz, Lord, that was amazing. And Jesus said, that's no big deal. Be more excited that you've been saved, that your names are written in the book of life. That is the thrust of the New Testament. But they did try out their faith. When Jesus said, you have authority, they went out and they exercised that authority. I would challenge us to begin to pray about that and think about that, what it means, again, to exercise that authority. Remember as you do it that the victory has already been won, that we are battling from a place of victory. If you went to a Warriors game on Friday night and you had traveled ahead in time and you had seen that they had won clearly and then you went back in time and you went to play that game, how would you play that game? with amazing confidence. You would go into that game saying, we can't lose, guys. I went forward in time. I saw that the victory is sure. We can't lose. And so you go into that game just going, rah, rah, rah. Just throw the ball, man. I'll get it. Rah. You would play with amazing confidence because you knew the victory was won. Be amazingly confident in the authority Jesus Christ has given you because the victory has already been won. Psalm 44, 3, For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and by their own arm did not, they were not saved. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy presence, for thou didst favor them. Isaiah 42, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior, and he will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. The battle belongs to the Lord. But we are his soldiers. Amen? Father, we ask it this morning. You would remind me.
remind us of your victory and you would encourage us with the authority that you've entrusted unto us. We realize that the disciples sometimes failed in that authority through a lack of faith or a lack of walking in prayer and walking with you. Cause us to be now men and women as we all raised our hands and said, yes, I've, I've seen demonic activity. Cause us to be men and women now of great faith who would live lives of prayer that when we are confronted with the reality of that, we would wield the authority that you have simply given to us. The basis of the victory is your victory upon the cross. The power of your blood, it is not our own. We declare that, we recognize that. But we also declare that you have given us that authority. Teach us to wield it. And Lord, teach us to rock, walk right before you. That we would give the enemy no opportunity in this house, in this congregation, in our homes, and in our community. And thank you that the victory is yours, that the battle belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.